How to have joy. How to have joy. We have been laying the foundation for our personal joy. That foundation is rooted in your understanding of God's joy. And if you would have joy, and if you would maintain joy, then you must have an understanding of God's joy. For God expresses joy as we've gone over. We've seen the things that God rejoices in, which concerns His creation. He rejoices in righteousness and His own works of providence. There's an intra-Trinitarian rejoicing between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a rejoicing in the Savior, in His person, and in His work. And there is a rejoicing in your salvation and you being saved. And there is a rejoicing that God has in store for both Him and us, and that it is God's eternal purpose to make us an eternal mirror to reflect the very pleasure of God in heaven. God created you for eternal joy. So how do we appropriate this knowledge so that we have an abiding joy? We know it is Christ's will that we, His joy, abides in us. So first of all, first and foremost, as we've been trying to lay, the first aspect of our personal joy is to know God. You must have an understanding of who who God is if you want to have true joy. Imagine for a moment if you are ignorant of God. Can you imagine not knowing anything about God, not knowing His person, His character, His, His, the history of His works among mankind, being ignorant of the Word of God, not knowing Genesis from Revelation? Imagine if you did not know that He was eternally divine and all-powerful. Imagine if that you believed in a God who was not omniscient and was ignorant. There's a movie coming out about some superheroes and things. And uh, I was, uh, this movie concerns a comic book series I was very fond of as a child. And uh, in this comic book series, there's this bad guy, his name's Thanos. And he collects these uh, infinity gems and he creates an all-powerful infinity gauntlet. Doesn't that sound intimidating? The infinity gauntlet. And then the the collection opens up with him uh, carving the word God in this planet because he now has the power of a God and he's trying to impress a, a woman named Death. And so he, with a thought, kills half the population of the entire universe. And he's all-powerful, so all the heroes have to gang up on him all at one time and he just kills them all because he has the power of God. But... But he, though he has access to all knowledge, he doesn't have all knowledge at one time, and he's tricked, and he loses the gauntlet, and anyway. The point is, imagine being that if there was a God that didn't have all knowledge and all wisdom all at one time. There's a difference between being smart and knowing everything. And then there's a difference between the divine omniscience. That's difference. All knowledge is before God all at the same time. In fact, it, it, is prob- it is incorrect for you to imagine of a God who thinks. He doesn't think. He knows. And so I use that silly illustration of a comic book. 
to illustrate that uh, it would be very sad if God did not have omniscience, if he did not have all wisdom and understanding. But how often do people imagine to have for God to have some fault or imperfection? I mean, imagine if you was in a situation where God didn't know about it. Or if God didn't know what to do. You got yourself stuck. I mean, how frightening would that be? How much of a loss of joy and potential comfort you if would you have if you did not understand who God was? I suppose most people believe something akin to the fact that God's out there, but he doesn't care. Imagine if you thought God was not omnipotent. Or if you thought he was not all-righteous. Common cavil against the existence of God. So why does God allow evil and suffering? If God allows suffering, then he's not good. If he can't do anything about it, then he's not all-powerful. So a Christian is stuck in saying that God's either not all-powerful or he's not all-good. But we certainly know that the scripture teaches both that he is all-powerful and all-righteous. Now, believing these imperfections in God cannot but cause despair in this world. And ignorance of God causes the very opposite of joy. There's nothing joyful in thinking that there is no omnipotent deity out there. If you think that we're just all a bunch of random collection and that there is no such thing as humanity, but we're just a series of chemical reactions, uh, what joy is there in that? The only joy man would have who are ignorant about God, it would be the fleeting joys of money, of gluttony, of drunkenness, of lust, just the fleeting pleasures of this world. And we know by reading the papers, of the, if you still do that kind of thing, which I highly recommend you don't waste your time with, but uh, certainly the famous and the rich and famous do not exactly have lives of joy and happiness, do they? But your true joy first consists in knowing the attributes of God. And the first attribute we will consider is the wisdom and knowledge of God. That is the wisdom and knowledge that God has. What comfort and hope is there in knowing that God is all wise? I suppose for a text to introduce this topic would be 1 Timothy 1.17. 1 Timothy one seventeen will be our uh, introductory text, if you will. And then we're, uh, later on we're going to read the 139th Psalm in its entirety. But First Timothy one seventeen says this, Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That He is indeed the only wise God. God has all wisdom. He knows all things at once. Psalm 147 verse 5 says this, Great is our God and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Not only does God know all things, He knows all possibilities as well. So how do we rejoice in knowing that God is omniscient? Children, again, I remind you that uh, omniscient means all-knowing, that God is all-wise. And there is certainly a blessing in knowing that God knows us, and that God sees us every moment. 
And we can rejoice that His eye of love and protection will never close. How many times, you parents, have you been out and about somewhere, maybe at a grocery store, and you have your little toddlers with you, and you look up for just a second to grab the ketchup, and you turn around, and little Johnny's gone. And there's that moment of panic, isn't there? I mean, just just a moment of panic. Usually they're around the corner, or they're inside the clothes rack hiding and giggling. There's that moment when you look away, and boom, they're gone. And how comforting is it to know that God never looks away, not even for that one moment? Take great comfort and joy. He will never take his eyes away from us, not even for one second. Job says this, For his eyes are upon the ways of man. He seeth all his goings. And God sees you in all of your goings. Thus for the Christian, our Heavenly Father will never lose track with us. And of course, this is intimately tied with with His omnipresence. That if God knows all things, He must be in all places at the same time. And to see these two ideas coalesce, go ahead and turn to Psalm 139. And we will read this psalm in its entirety. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. As I read, look for these, this idea of God knowing and understanding. Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, O Lord, but, O Lord, Thou knowest it all together. Thou set me behind and before, and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from Thy Spirit? Or whither shall I flee from Thy presence? If I send up to heaven, Thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, and hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. we'll pause here to ask, are the works of God well known to you? My substance was not hid from thee, when I was made in the secret and the curi- and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Children, again, he's talking about the womb. He's talking about when he was a baby in, in the womb. Mine eyes did see mine substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me. Is meditating upon God precious to you? Do you know enough about God to meditate upon? O God, how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. 
When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked. O God, depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. As we look at the language here, God searches. This implies actively looking from God, doesn't it? God is actively applying himself, searching out David, searching out his providence, searching out his life, even searching to the heart and soul of David. God is actively seeking out everything. He is not passively looking. He is not just staring at it. This is something God is actively doing. He knows you. He knows your actions. He knows your thoughts and he knows your heart. He knows you and your heart better than you do. That's why David is crying out, Search me, O God, because I know that you know me better, better than I do. That's sad how man doesn't even know his own self. Not only does he see all of your doings, But he even knows all of your thoughts. He knows your hearts. He knows your affections. He knows the things you like and dislike. Ezekiel 11.5 says this, And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said unto me, Speak, thus saith the Lord. Thus have ye said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. We can't hardly remember every thought we've had in the past 10 minutes. Our minds, our attention spans are seconds long, typically. I've heard it said, I don't know exactly how they studied it, but I heard it said uh, somewhere that the goldfish have, on average, a longer attention span than man does. And certainly, that certainly seems, not that I know much about a goldfish's attention span, I know they make good catfish bait, but I don't know about their attention span or how they studied a goldfish's attention span, but uh, knowing how fleeting my thoughts are, I certainly wouldn't have any grounds for uh, arguing against it. But God knows every one of your thoughts that you have ever thought in your whole life. And He knows every thought you're going to think. Just stop and comprehend that for a moment. No wonder David said, it's too wonderful for me. Think how it is wicked not to consider that God knows all things. For they say, the Lord seeth us not, the Lord hath forsaken the earth. As in they do not believe that God, the wicked, actively push out that idea of God knowing their hearts and minds. It is said, John Paul Sartre, famous atheistic playwright, that when he was a young man, he began to be consumed with the idea of God peering at him. Uh, from heaven and seeing everything he's ever done and he can't get away from God. And he had a moment in his life when he was a young man he was in the bathroom and he uh, just pitched a fit and yelled and screamed and he got God out of his mind and he killed off God in his mind and God is dead. And finally he 
got rid, got, got out from the gaze of the of God. How silly it is for him to think that pitching a fit in the bathroom can make God shut his eye to him. But he hated the idea of God knowing everything he had done. Hosea 7.2 They consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about and they are before my face. God knows everything you have done, everything every man has done. God knows. And how sad is this just to comprehend the patience and love of God is that God knows every sin that has been committed. God knows every sin that has been committed. That's a terrible thought to think of the culmination of sins that God knows for all these thousands of years, all the terrible things that have ever happened, and God knows every one of them. But the Christian begins to take joy even in that sober thought because God knows that every sin that has been committed against you, He knows everyone that has wronged you and hurt you and done you wrong. Some of you have had terrible crimes committed against you. Many times, we have no recourse in this world for justice. From an earthly perspective, many people have gotten away with it. But take comfort, saints. Know that God knows all these things. And He will remember their sins and judge them as if they had done that to Him because you are His. You belong to Him. You are the body of Jesus Christ. And all the sins that have ever happened to you, God will impute it as if it was done unto Himself. Jeremiah sixteen seventeen. For mine eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face. Neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. Ecclesiastes 12.14 For God shall bring about every work in the judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. There is a judgment coming. And how sad to think that these people who are ignorant of God, ignorant of His wisdom, ignorant of His justice, are going about sinning without any idea that there will be a judgment day. Filling up wrath for the day of wrath. Jesus said in Luke 12.2, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. And for the Christian, we take joy and comfort, a very sobering joy. We certainly don't seek, uh, actively seek punishment. You don't take joy in the thought of God condemning somebody to hell, at least not yet. But we do seek justice, even for the things done to us, even for the things that the little things that people have done to us. And our joy is found in, in taking hold that there is a judgment to come. And we are to wait patiently with it. And see, here's the faith, how our faith affects our joy. And therefore, an increase, a strengthening of faith, faith based on the knowledge of Scripture, increases our joy on a daily and practical basis. That we don't have to live our lives bitter because of crimes committed against us. We don't have to be in despair and mourning and, and bitterness because somebody has done something wrong. Or that there has been a, a bitter providence in our lives. We can have a joy in patiently waiting. A joy by faith in knowing that God will set all things right. 
Therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God or condemnation of God as it shall be. Christians can take delight in knowing that God will store up His knowledge of the good things you've done. How many little things have you done to be a blessing to people and encourage people? And that God is not unrighteous to forget your works of faith. God stores in knowledge every encouraging word, every prayer you have ever prayed. God stores that up in His knowledge to be revealed at the last day. How many times have you done something good and not gotten credit for it? Or done something well and somebody else got credit for it? But God will give the proper credit in due time. But while we wait by faith on God, we apply God's knowledge of sin to ourselves. We must apply God's knowledge of sin to ourselves. And even in this, we can find something to rejoice in. In Psalm 139, not only does David rejoice in the omniscience and omnipresence of God and watching over him, but he rejoices He rejoices that God can peer even into his very heart and mind. If God sees and knows all things, then he sees the seeds of sin, those affections for sin buried deep in our hearts. And who would have thought that we can take comfort and even rejoice that God can see your sins? You should indeed take great comfort when considering this for our sanctification. And that each of us knows that God will see us if we sin willfully. If we are just determined to sin, God will see that. The new man rejoices at this thought. The old man, that old sinful nature, mourns and weeps at the idea of losing his beloved sin. So when I say that God will see you sin and that God knows all of your sin and He knows all the sins you're going to commit, how does that make you feel? Does that make you sad to think that there are some sins you're just not going to be able to commit? Does it make you sad to think that if you commit such and such sin, God is going to reveal that? How does it make you feel to know that you will not get away with your sins? You're not going to get away with your sins. What, what, when I, that sentence entered into your ears, what did you feel in your heart? Is there an area of your life where you have expressed some sadness at losing your sin? Take note of that. Such a feeling should inform you that there is still a need of work of grace in our state in that area. But as you consider the idea that there there is some remnants of affection for sin in your heart and mind, and it can be in any, any area. Do not, however, despair of your Christianity. If you find some remnants of a beloved sin... Because we all have affection for some sin. We didn't have affection for sin. We wouldn't sin. Affection for sin is antecedent of sin. You have to want something more before your will. You have to have a desire for it before your will kicks in to do it. 
Sometimes you have a desire for a sin, but you are not willing because you're not able. A lot of us don't sin because we just don't have the money to sin. And sin can be expensive. There's a lot of rich people spending a lot of money on some very expensive sin. So sometimes our heart goes beyond our wills. That can be true as we're going to read in the second part of Christian uh, Pilgrim's Progress as that is applied to uh, old age. Pilgrim's Progress does a wonderful job of admonishing us not to mistake a decay of nature for progression and sanctification. As in, how holy would you be if you had a 20-year-old's body? Would you be just as chaste? Would you be just as sober? Would you be just as... Uh, would you have a lack of vanity? If you had the opportunity to sin, would you sin? And that's a, certainly a very hard question. That's why David cries out, and that's why we need to cry out and not be afraid and rejoice in the idea that God can peer into our hearts and minds and knows our sins, knows our weaknesses, knows that, know that we are uh, prone to sin. Because we need help in this area because there is a part of us, even though we have these affections, those of you who are born again, you also have a part of you by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit, that's fighting against that. That wants that part of you dead, wants to kill, mortify those affections. And it wants to enliven the graces of God and wants to obey God and wants to be pleasing to God, wants to be clean and pure. There's a part of you, if you're born again, if you have any part of God that wants a clean conscience, that wants to live a life of inward purity. And it's wonderful. Many of you know what it's like to have a burdened conscience. And it's terrible. It's terrible to be a Christian and not be able to express full joy with a clean conscience. If you're going to have the joy of Christ, you need a clean conscience. And if you want a clean conscience, you need God to search you and know you and search out and show to you if there's any wickedness in you. Even though there's a part of you that withdraws from that, that doesn't want God to seek too deep within you, that God does, that you don't want God to reveal too much of your sin to you. But nevertheless, there is a part of you the grace of God, the seed of righteousness that rejoices in the idea that God's knowledge is essential to your sanctification. God knows your sin. This should inform us we need a work of grace in that area and not to despair in our Christianity. The test of Christianity is not that you never sin, but that you are living a life of repentance. That you are praying that prayer of David. We all know David had sin, didn't he? He had plenty of sin to go around. But he had a life of repentance. He goofed up as bad as anybody in Scripture. And he deserved to die, didn't he? And we all deserve to die the death. And we all deserve to be condemned to hell for our sins. God is merciful and kind. David led a life of repentance. Are you living a life of repentance? When you ask God to search you, are you asking God with the idea to repent of those sins? 
We know that God already knows. We're not saying search me so you know God, but search me and tell me so that I can know the depths of my sin. Because God knows your sin. He knows the worst thing about you. Have you ever stopped to consider that God knows the very worst thing about you? He knows those things that you would never mention in public. If you were forced to come up front here, everyone, we had every one of us spend two minutes to come up here and tell us the very worst deed you've ever done. Well, that would be bad, wouldn't it? But what if we had you come up here and tell us the very worst, most satanic thought you've ever had? You know what happened to every single one of us, including me? We'd either, one, not say anything, or two, outright lie. There are thoughts that have entered into our head that we would never say out loud. And we would, we, we were just not going to go there. They're just our, that's the depth of depravity of the mind. Whether it's things we've willfully meditated on, or things that, by the whispering and temptation of Satan, come into our mind. There are things we're not going to tell one another. In fact, what would happen if we was to set up a, I've used this illustration before, it's a wonderful illustration, if we was to set up a movie screen up here and put a projector in your mind and had everybody watch the very worst thought you've ever had. Guarantee you, you wouldn't ever set your face in this building again, would you? I'd be terrible. And God have mercy. But God, and, and here's the thing, you would be showing other people you know would have those same kind of thoughts. Even if you sat here and watched everybody else's thought, you still wouldn't show your face around here. But God knows not just your very worst, but every single one of those kind of thoughts you've ever had. He knows what you would never speak out loud. And in in spite of Him knowing all of this, the very worst thing about you whether you had done or said, yet despite this fact, God has set His love upon you. And He knows you. He knows every vile thought you have ever had. And He will look upon, and He will look upon you as the very apple of His eye. You do not have to make yourself acceptable to God. You are already acceptable in the Beloved. Jesus Christ has made an atonement. That righteousness is imputed to your account. He has placed you within the body of Christ. And he looks upon you as his beloved son. In whom he is well pleased. And in his process of bringing joy to you. See God's not just satisfied with the judicial aspects of salvation. God's just not satisfied in the judicial aspects of salvation, but He's also, He takes great joy in the practical aspects of salvation and bringing your sanctification up one day to meet with your justification. It won't meet perfectly because you have the very righteousness of God imputed to your account. But you will be like Him one day, for you shall see Him as He is. And it's God's delight, it's the will of God to sanctify you. And he does this by cleansing away his sin. Cleansing away that sin. He reveals and searches you. And generally he spends your whole life doing that. Until that day he brings you unto himself. 
How many of you here have spent decades living a life of repentance, continual repentance, and still asking God, search me and know me? You know, there's a real grace of God in having a progressive sanctification. There's a real grace of God. Can you imagine if you were first converted and God really revealed all your depravity to you all at once? You wouldn't be able to take it. But this is the idea that David's heart was not that God merely sees his sin. This wasn't capricious of, oh God, see my sin so you can forgive me and give me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. David understood that. He said in Psalm 133, If thou, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And your self-examination is not unto self-destruction. A lot of people have this idea that their sin is unforgivable. That they're not worthy of God. Yes, you're not worthy. God knows you're not worthy. He knew you were not worthy before you knew you weren't worthy. But it's because of that unworthiness that He sent His Son into this world. If you believe on Him, you'll have everlasting life. And in this process, God brings us along in sanctification. If God searches you and He knows your sins, He can bring us to repentance. He can reveal us to them. He can tear away our affections for that sin. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, how are you going to confess your sins if you don't know your sins? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And not just forgive them judicially, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what greater joy can you imagine than the joy of having your sins forgiven? The joy of having a clean slate before God, a perfect record before God, and that God is faithful to cleanse you out of your sins, cleanse you away from your sins, and deliver you finally one day from your sins. Is there not any part of you that rejoices at the idea of sinning less and being sinless one day? Turn to Psalm 103, starting in verse 6. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide. Neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins. Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Because he has dealt with Jesus after your sins. And he rewarded Jesus with your iniquities. For as heaven is high above the earth. So great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Look at verse 14. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. God's searching is not out to simply humiliate you. He's not bragging about himself. But he's a father, a loving father correcting his children. He knows your frame 
And in this searching, he knows that he's going to find sin. And yet he calls on you to call on him. He wants you to call on him for him to search you. He is active in this and he wants you to be active in this. Have you called out God saying, show me my sin, even as a Christian? What a terrible thing. What a terrible thing. A hard thing it is. As Christians know that God answers prayers. The church is a place that should reflect the same love and grace towards sinners. A strong church is where we can know the worst of each other and increase in love for each other. That our weaknesses causes us to mutually love each other. That's a strong church. Christianity does not consist in the mere outward expression of formalism or hypocrisy. But it consists in a true heart work. Psalm 139 is a heart work in David, isn't it? He's just not satisfied with the appearance of goodness, with the outward appearance, showing up to church, you know, partaking of the ordinances. But David there is crying for a heart work. Our weaknesses ought to commend us to each other. I hope you understand. I hope God, may God illuminate your minds to add that understanding that I'm failing to give when I say that a strong church is a weak church. A poor church. A naked church. We will, as a church, hopefully... Make the same boast that the Apostle Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says in verse 9, He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. I receive joy in my weakness and reproaches, and necessities, and persecutions, and distresses. For when I am weak, then am I strong. That we use the knowledge of God to search us, that we may know how weak we are, so we can receive joy in looking that our strength is in Christ. And we take joy in decreasing, and we take joy in Christ increasing your sanctification then this is a, one of those Christian paradoxes like we read in Psalm 139 of David hating his neighbor whom he's called to love with a perfect hatred you can hate those you love that's, that's a Christian paradox it's hard to explain but your sanctification does not really consist in trying harder but rather submitting to an almighty and all-wise God. And again, that's another very difficult statement to say, that your sanctification does not consist in you trying harder, but submitting to God. Isn't it interesting to think that most uh, eight of the Ten Commandments are negatives? Don't do things. I mean, how you know how much effort it takes not to do something? Zero. It takes zero effort not to do something. So when you do something, you're putting effort in because you have an affection for it to offend God. You have to make effort to offend God. 
Now, what of your sanctification has to do in resting and stopping and ceasing and not being strong and glorying in your infirmity? How contrary is that to the spirit of this world? Glorying in weakness. Let's pray.